We continue the Shear in Navi. Last Shear we spoke about the difficulty David HaMelech had with his own son, Avshalim, who drove him out of Yerushalayim and took over the throne himself. And the tragedy of King David leaving, being thrown out actually, expelled with a new host of enemies arising, especially one Shimi ben Gera, who ran alongside cursing and throwing stones at him. He was so heartbroken that he ordered Shimi ben Gera not to be touched. Now, after a while, we said too, King David escaped through the advice of one of his helpers who misled Avshalom into hesitating before striking. Had he struck, attacked King David immediately, he could have wiped out King David's army easily. This way, in hesitating, King David had a chance to rally, cross the River Jordan to the other side, and there to wait to gather up his forces to regroup, to renew his strength. Now he decided to attack. So, as Avshalom's army had been mobilized, a very large army too, and came over the River Jordan to meet King David in battle, David assigned three top men, three generals, to lead his armed forces. One was Yoav, his brother Avishai, and a third general. He told them, go out, meet the Jews in battle, but before you go, he said, I have one favor to ask. My favor is li'at li'avshalom, which means, please, go very slowly with my son Avshalom. You're going out into battle. I know your ferocity in battle, how ferocious you can be, how powerful, how victorious. I know that regardless of what numbers you have opposing you, you will undoubtedly win this battle. But you're going to meet Avshalom too. Please be careful. Do not hurt Avshalom. This is a personal favor I'm asking, and this is also an order to all the soldiers going with you. The three generals set out to battle, and in this battle, which took place in the, was called the Forests of Ephraim. This was in Transjordan, part of, literally, legally, a part of Israel, actually. It belonged to the two and a half tribes of Israel. It was called the Forests of Ephraim because it bordered the section that Ephraim owned, this forest, the followers of King David battled the followers of Avshalom, and the first day there were 20,000 casualties of Avshalom's men, but much more than that were killed by the wild animals in the forest. It was a violent type of death. Of course, the tide had turned against Avshalom, the will of Hashem. This is all a pre-planned action from heaven. Now, meanwhile, this was not the main part of the battle. Avshalom saw that he was certain to lose. His only chance was to escape with his life. And so he got on his pony, it was a small pony, and he fled. He sped away from the scene of battle, going through this forest, jungle type of forest. Now the Torah tells us, the Gemara explains, that Avshalom was unusually handsome, extremely handsome. In fact, second to none among all the Jews. Now, Sholem was also very vain, very proud of his looks, specifically proud of his long hair, his locks. And once a year, 
Once every 12 months, he cut his hair. Once a year, this hair he weighed with comparable to gold. This pride in his long hair was his undoing, his defeat, and his death came about because of this long hair. The Gemara says that which he prided himself in illegally, that turned out to be his downfall. And of course the Gemara warns that since wearing long hair is so serious a crime, every person should learn a lesson from this because Avshalom was not an evil person. Shalom had this one time when he fell victim to his Yetzirah, to his evil inclination, his desire suddenly for power, but this led him to seek the throne against his own father. Also, due to the advice of Achisophel, he was misled by the advice of Achisophel, who led him on. So, despite this greatness of Avshalom, he fell into this wrong type of plan, and especially the Torah stresses because of his hair, therefore he met this strange type of death. While riding along at top speed on his horse, he rode underneath a low overhanging branch, and as he flew past, his hair became entangled in this branch. The horse kept on running, he was left hanging there by his hair. His hair was completely matted, knotted in, on this branch. Well, he knew that any moment now, the enemies, his enemies, the followers of King David would come along and they would surely kill him. So the Gemara says that he withdrew his sword, he raised it up to his head to cut off his hair, thereby to free himself. The Gemara says at that moment he looked down and he froze in terror because he saw beneath him the earth suddenly open up, a large opening, a pit. Beneath him he saw literally the fires of Gehenna. So he froze, he couldn't cut, release himself to fall into this pit. He remained suspended on that tree till a short time later one of the soldiers came back to Yoav and said to him, I have a report. He reported that Avshalom is hanging on a tree. He's alive, he was caught by his hair. In fact, he said, I saw him there. Yoav said to him, well, why didn't you kill him? I would give you ten pieces of silver as a reward. And this soldier, who was a subordinate, regular private, speaking to Yoav, who was a general, replied, you tell me I should have killed him? I was present when King David issued an order to everyone. That covers you and it covers me. And nobody should dare to put a finger, touch Avshalom to harm him. Now, you say I should kill him. I'm sure, this was said sarcastically, I'm sure that if I was to kill him, following your orders, with your so-called reward, if later King David would chastise me, reprimand me for having hurt his son of Shalom, I'm certain you would stand by the side without trying to defend me whatsoever. You'd be afraid to take my side. And therefore, I'm much better off not going after Avshalom, regardless of what type of reward you offer. You all said to him, all right, enough with your talk. I see that there's no chance of getting any assistance from you. This is a job for me to do myself. He rode on, he came to the place where Avshalom was, he was hanging. Of course, he could not see what Avshalom had seen. To him, the ground was level. 
he came close to Avshalom, he picked up three spears, and he plunged the three of them into Avshalom's heart, or into his chest. Despite these three spears, Avshalom was still alive. Still remained, of course, he was mortally wounded, but he was still alive. The Yorah says, why these three spears? The reason was because he had three spears in the heart, or the heart section, because he had stolen the heart of three. Stolen the heart means fool, or attempted to fool the heart of his father, King David, the heart of the Jews, and the heart of the courts, the Bezdin. For this, he was punished with these three. It wasn't exactly spears, it was sharp, pointed branches that Yoav used. As we said, he was not killed yet. Yoav's servants came by, and they attacked him. They plunged ten more spears into him. With this, he died. And these ten spears, again, the Gemara says that the reason for it was because Avshalom had dared to take the ten concubines, the ten half-wives of his father, King David. These ten spears were his punishment. Now, Avshalom did not have any sons that were fit to take over the royalty. He did have a daughter who came forth one of the kings later on. He had no sons. He wanted to leave something behind him as memory of himself, some kind of a monument. And so he had the foresight to set up a sort of a monument on the Mount of Olives. It's called Yad Avshalom. Those who have been to Israel, Jerusalem, recently have been able to see it. That's in the new section of New Jerusalem, just outside of the wall of the old city. It's on a Mount of Olives, on Harazesim, and you can see by its age how old this monument is. Of course, the top of the monument has been chopped off by the Arabs in Achshimon. The top was in the form of a hand. It's called Yad Avshalom, the hand of Avshalom. This Avshalom left behind as a monument himself. Uh, the Gemara again says, why didn't Avshalom have the Zechus to leave behind him sons? Question whether he had no sons or whether he had no sons fit to take over royalty. What was the reason for this punishment? The Gemara says simply because at one time previously, in order to summon the general Yoav to him, he couldn't get his attention, so he had Yoav's fields set fire to. He destroyed his fields with fire. This was sort of a joke. I finally got you to come to see me. But one who destroys the property of someone else, his penalty is that his own children will suffer for it. Or he will suffer in not having a true nachas from his children. Abinadol discusses that point about the connection between stealing from someone and affecting that person's children, affecting his mate and children. There's a whole discussion in the Kutimaran on that in Taylor Samach Tes, the Kutimaran. Now, at this time, of course, Avshalom had died, and the son of the Kohen Godlach, Imatz, wanted to run quickly and bear the news, give the news to King David. He wanted to tell King David the news that the battle was successful and to attempt to hide from King David the tragic news that his son, Avshalom, was dead. He knew how much King, how much King David cared for his son. So he asked Yoav to allow him to be the runner, carry these tidings. And Yoav answered that he had already sent a kushi to bear the news, to bring the news to King David. Achimatz pleaded and said, let me go too. There was a small hassle about this, and finally Yoav agreed. 
But he said you can never catch him because he's way ahead of you. Chimatz was a very fast runner. He knew a shortcut. Taurus was he bypassed the Kushi. And he came to where King David was waiting for news of this battle. He was alone there with just a guard on top of the post on the wall watching for any arrivals. And the guard told King David that there is a runner coming. It looks like Achimaz, the son of the Kohen Gadol. King David said that must be good news because a tzaddik like him brings only good news. Then he said, there's another runner behind him. King David said, fine, we'll take them one at a time for their news. When Achimaz came in, King David asked him, how are things going? Achimaz answered very well. They, we have defeated your enemies and you will, you will be able to return to Yerushalayim to take over the kingdom again, take over the throne. King David said, what about my son of Shalom? Achimatz answered, there was such a big crowd, I couldn't see what was going on, I couldn't get the full details, I was just told this news to bring to you, and that's it. In other words, he did not really tell a lie, he did not reveal the truth. King David said to him, fine, there's another runner behind you, perhaps he has later news. Stand aside. The Kushi came close, King David asked him, what's new? The Kushi said, what's new? All your enemies should meet the same fate as your son of Shalom. He blurted it right out. King David heard that. He burst out in a fit of tears. Hanigar says he went up to the top of the, this castle where he was. He began to cry. And his words were, My son, my son. Of Shalom, my son, my son. My son, my son. Of Shalom, my son, my son. Those are the words. Hanigar says very strange words to be written in the Torah. Loving. What did he mean by these words? When you cry about your son, you say, pour out your heart over the tragedy. And why exactly this many times? The Imar says, because King David knew that Avshalom was in a lot of trouble. Avshalom, who had dared to commit these crimes against King David, the king of the Jews, to take the wives, the concubines of King David, to create a revolution that resulted in such bloodshed, now, he was finally in the other world in heaven. He'd be judged so severely that unquestionably he would not only go to Gehenna, but he would be sentenced to the lowest part of Gehenna, the seventh level from which there's no return. So King David put his heart into this tefillah, prayer of Itzadikimus, and he cried each time. He said, my son, exactly eight times. Each time he cried out, my son, this penetrated through the heavens, and elevated Avshalom one level higher. Of course, we see from here how quickly the amazing speed sometimes with which a person is judged in heaven, where it's a matter of seconds. Of course, this too is understood that in heaven there is infinite time. Heaven is spaceless and timeless, so that in one second of Earth's time, a soul in heaven can go through a review of the entire 70 years of a person's life reenacted to be judged on it because time sort of stands still there. Within those few seconds, the judgment has been carried out, the soul is already sentenced and sent to its place to where it is sentenced. So as you see here that Avshalom is already in the lowest part of Gehenna, with each cry from King David, he was elevated, drawn up to the higher level. Seven times my son took Avshalom out of all these seven levels of Gehenna, the eighth time, he brought him into Ganeid. This is similar to the case of Rabbi Meir's 
Rebbe Acher, who, because he turned into an atheist, a kofer, therefore was sentenced to Gehenim too. In fact, was not even permitted to go to Gehenim. He was that bad. But Mayer, when he passed away, when Mayer passed away, he used influence to get Acher into Gehenim to purify him of his sins. And then Rameh's Talmud, later Talmud, Rabbi Yochanan, said, if this is Rameh's rabbi, or Rameh's colleague, who turned bad, then surely we have to band together, we rabbis have to band together, to rescue one of ours. If one of ours became a bad apple, we must all unite to save that one bad apple. Rabbi Yochanan said, I cannot wait until I pass away, because when I do, I am going to get Acher out of Gehenna. Gemara says that when he passed away, he came to Gehenim. He went directly into Gehenim, Rabbi Yochanan. And as he walked in, all the guards were speaking about these tremendous, powerfully endowed angels, superpowers, who tried to block Rabbi Yochanan's path. And they could not. So great is the tzaddik that he can overpower all these angels. He went directly to Acher, took him, held on to him, and walked out of Gehenim with him. No one. All the multitudes of the Mechablim, the dangerous angels of Gehenna, the guardians there, could not stop Rabbi Yochanan's passage into and out of Gehenna, taking Acherat. This is the power of the Tzadik Emes. This is what Rabbi Nazar refers to many times when he says that I will assuredly, definitely, take any one of my students out of Gehenna, if he should ever get there, if he would fulfill the advice that the Benazar gives, the advice on Espotidus, and specifically, specifically one of Zoha to get Rabbinazal's Tzion and say the Tikkun Akolita and give money for Tzaka. This is the power of a Tzadik Emes who can rule over, who's superior to all the angels in heaven. However, here the question arises, the question of the and Tzitzis asks this question, the Gemara says, that it is vital that a person fulfill the first mitzvah in the Torah, which is to get married and have children, and the mitzvah vishinantam levanecha, teach your children Torah, see that they are given a religious upbringing, that they are shomrei shabbos, that they observe mitzvahs, because someday you might need them. If the child is religious, even if the parent is the most evil person in existence, that parent will be saved from Gehenna because the schus of the child will stand by the parent and rescue that parent in the future. No matter what the parent is like, if the parent has a child, son or daughter who is religious, that parent is immunized, <coughs> becomes immune to the punishment in heaven. Now the Gemara says that this holds true only in the case of a child for a parent. A child can save a parent. Cheskiyahu HaMelech, one of the greatest Siddiquim of all time, had a father who was one of the worst idol worshippers out. And this father was saved from Gehenna because he had a son, Cheskiyahu HaMelech. He says, but a father cannot save a child. You have one of the greatest Siddiquim of all time, one of the fathers of the Jews, Yitzchak Avinu, who was so great that the Gemara says that he offered, he volunteered, to use his credits to save all the Jews of all time from punishment. So no discussion we had what to share on that. He offered to go in partnership with Hashem. He said, Hashem, use your kindness, I'll use my powers, my credits, 
to get all Jews forgiven, we'll share their evils alike. Share the burden, and we can clear it up. And he said, Hashem, if you refuse this partnership, fine, I'll do it myself. This was Yitzhak Avinu. Yet the Gemara says Yitzhak Avinu could do this for others. He could not do it for his own son, Esau. Because a father cannot save his own child. A child could save a father, a rabbi could save a student, a tzaddik could save a generation, but a father cannot save his son. So in this case, the question arises, how could David HaMelech have saved Avshalom? If Yitzhak Avinu could not save Esav, how could David HaMelech save Avshalom? It's a very deep question, very difficult one. And Tosavos replies, there are a number of answers given by Tosavos and Mephoshim. The first important answer is that the case of Avshalom was different because if a person experiences a solid, definite punishment for his sins, this can be a kapora forgiveness. Avshalom did not die a natural death. He died a horrible death, plus he was put to death by others. This would constitute a type of kapora, type of forgiveness for most of his sins. After this punishment was meted out to him, after he experienced his death penalty in heaven, then it was simpler for King David too to save the life of Hashem. That's one answer. Second answer is that King David maintained, insisted, this is not a regular case of Yitzhak Avinu and Esau of Russia, because there Yitzhak Avinu tried his best to bring up Esau as well as he could. Esau was naturally bad himself. Or any case of that type, where the child is that evil, there is no relationship between the father and son anymore. In this case, King David insisted, my son of Shalom was a tzaddik and is a tzaddik. And this claim was a very solid claim. He cried out, I want my son forgiven, because he did not commit a sin on his own. This was my fault. What brought about this whole incident? The fact that Hashem said through the prophet, because you had this case, this particular incident with Bathsheba and Uriah, therefore from among your family there will rise up one to harass you, to torment you, to cause you this kind of trouble. He said, those are the words from heaven. So it was my fault that I something this came about. My fault that I've shown turned this way. If it's my fault, I want him forgiven. His claim too was a definite logical one, and so it was granted in this respect, at least that his tefillah prayers would help. Now, third, his main claim was that we mentioned before that Avshalom was not really evil. He did not deserve to be wiped out completely because of this act, since he was basically good. He was misled. It is true that no person can ever claim innocence because someone misled him. The answer always is, if someone told you to commit a sin, you had Hashem telling you not to commit it, you must listen to Hashem, superior rather than to what is going against Hashem. That excuse is a very weak one, but still to add this point to it, King David added this argument to it, that there were evil forces behind him who drove him on, and therefore he should be dealt with much more lightly. So combining all these reasons, King David was successful in ejecting Avshalom from Gehenna and bringing him to Gehenna. Now, this was his cries to heaven. King David covered his face and continued to cry, 
to mourn the passing of his son because he deeply loved Avshalom despite the fact that Avshalom had turned so bitterly against him. When Yoav arrived, Yoav looked on with consternation and he said to King David, you know you embarrass all of us because you're crying over the death of Avshalom. What if Avshalom instead would have won this battle and he would have killed us? You wouldn't have been crying then. So you're crying only because your son died and our victory means nothing to you. Isn't that a shame in front of all the Jews who fought so hard for you? King David heard that. He stopped crying. He washed his face and walked out to greet the victorious soldiers. And it was a very, very minor type of celebration because they realized that King David was still mourning deeply inside. Now, at that point, Avshalom had a general, Amosso. King David sent a notice to the tribe of Yehuda, I am ready to return, I want you to send a welcoming committee for me. In fact, be quick about it before the rest of the tribes of Israel do so, to show that they want to make peace with me, rather than the rebellious attitude they had previously. Be here first. The tribe of Yehuda got this message, they started out quickly. At the same time, King David sent a message to Amasa. Amasa was the general that Avshalom had appointed over his armies. The message said, Amasa, come to me, serve me, King David, and I'm going to appoint you as commander-in-chief of my armies in place of Yoav. Despite the loyalty of Yoav, despite the prowess, his unusual talents as a general, his continuous victories, King David was so angered with Yoav now. He had committed this killing of his son Avshalom. He no longer wanted him as commander-in-chief. So he called upon Amasa to come to visit him, to see him. And this is when he finally came back to Yerushalayim. And here we have another incident that transpired. It is told in the Navi in bits, different places. And that's why we abstained from speaking about it till now, but we can put it all together into sort of one single anecdote. Before the case of, of Shalom, King David was still mourning the passing of King Shaul and his son, Yonasan, who was his closest friend. And he said, I want to find the relatives, the children of Yonasan, if there are any. I want to do something good for, for them to show my close friendship, relationship with Yonasan, the son of King Shaul. It came to him a Canaanite. Kenani, it's one of the non-Jewish tribes of Israel. Kenani, of course, are the slaves of the Jews. His name was Tziva. Tziva came to King David and said, told him who he was. He said, I am the servant, the slave of, I was a slave of Yonah's son, the son of King Shaul, the prince, and I want to report to you that there is a son alive yet, son of Yonah's son. His name is Mephibosheth but he is crippled on both legs. He cannot walk. However, he is the remaining son of Jonas. So, King David summoned Mephibosheth. He was brought before him. He was very happy to see him and said to him, you are the son of Jonas, my closest friend. I want you to stay to live in my palace, to be treated royally. This is the least I can do for the memory of Jonas. And all the fields of King Shaul I give to you to belong to you. Not only that, but even this slave, Tzivor. Tzivor and his whole family shall remain your slaves forever after. 
This was the first meeting with Mephibosheth. And of course, Mephibosheth thanked King David very profusely. He felt very deeply about this and said, I surely don't deserve it. My father, Yonason, was a great tzaddik, and I know about your closeness with him. I deeply appreciate this. It's more than I deserved, but I will not refuse your kindness. So he stayed in the palace. Later on, King David was forced to flee the palace when Avshalom came to take over. Now, in fleeing, he left Yerushalayim, and those close to him came and volunteered to go with him. This was like going into exile, into danger. The close followers, the believers of King David, came to him and said, we're with you all the way. You're in exile, we'll go with you, we'll die with you, we'll fight with you and for you. When the time comes, we'll save you. A lot of these individual names came up, they came with him. While in the midst of flight, along came Tzibor, the slave, with a load of mules carrying a lot of food. And he said to King David, I know that you're fleeing, you need, you're badly in need of food. I brought you a lot of provisions. King David thanked him very much. It's very nice of you, he said. Where's your master? Where's Mephibosheth? Tzibor said, I'm sorry to report. Mephibosheth remained behind because he feels that now that you've been expelled, you're out, he'll be made king now, because the kingdom will revert back to the family of King Shaul. He is directly descendant, he will remain there as king. He's turned against you. King David said to Tzibor, in that case, everything he has belongs to you. All the fields I gave him belong to you now. His promise, of course, didn't mean much because King David wasn't in power at the time, but he said, wait, well, I'll come back yet. I promise you now, you'll have. Sibor thanked him very much, and that was it. David went into exile, then the battle took place, and then, afterwards, King David returned. When he came back to his palace, the first thing he did was take the ten concubines, ten wives, which had been defiled, desecrated by Avshalom. He had them put aside, locked up in a special room, where they would be treated very nicely, but separated, segregated. They could have no contact with the outside world anymore since they were desecrated. Then he met Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth did not cut his hair, did not change his clothes, did not do anything to wash up. He was in a very bad-looking shape. He saw King David, and he said to him, I give thanks to Hashem that I see you, because I had made a vow that I would not cleanse myself until I would see you back on the throne. King David said to him, what are you talking about? Where were you when I needed you? I needed people to encourage me. Why didn't you show up? Your servant, your slave did, and you didn't. Mephibosheth cried out to King David and said, didn't you realize that my servant Siva is so disloyal and such a fraud? He took the mules, told me he'd pick me up, we'd go to visit you. Instead, he left me here, a cripple, and went away himself and spoke Loshanhara slander against me to you. Here's the proof. Look at the way I look. I haven't touched my hair. I haven't done anything to perfect myself until you came back. King David said to him, well, in that case, then, I haven't got time to bother to look into the case. All right, then, you and Sibor will both divide the fields. Each of you will take half. So I don't, I don't have to go and judge the case. Mephibosheth said to him, I don't want any of it. I don't need any of it. Because it's enough only that I see you alive. The fact that I see you back again, I don't need anything at all. This is enough to bring me happiness. With that, this was complete. Yomara says, we see the danger of the worst crime in existence. There are three basic crimes that are considered the very worst possible. 
They're so bad that a person, any Jew, must be willing to die before committing any one of these three crimes. One is idol worship. A Jew must die rather than to worship idols. The second is committing murder. Rather than kill someone else, a Jew should rather have his own life be taken. The third is committing adultery. Those three sins are the only three sins that are that bad, that even in a question of life and death, it is better to choose death rather than break one of these three sins. There is one sin, the Gemara says, that is the equivalent of all three combined. The equivalent of all three, the combination of all three, and that sin is Lashon Hara. To speak evil, to slander a person, this Lashon Hara is so bad, it's the equivalent of all three sins combined. But the Gemara adds that it is not the speaking of evil alone that is forbidden, it is listening to, accepting the words of Lashon Hara, absorbing it, turning an ear to it, to listen to this type of talk. The speaker and the listener are both equally guilty. The Gemara says, in this case, because King David mistakenly had accepted Lashon Hara, slander, the part of from Tzivo, against the son of Jonas, so against Mephibosheth, at that moment that King David said to Mephibosheth, fine, I accept your words, just about 50% of them. You can divide the fields with Tzivo. A voice came from heaven and said, you told Mephibosheth he can divide with Tzivo 50% each. I'm telling you now that your kingdom will be divided too. Half of your kingdom will be taken away. Which means that time will come, not exactly half, it's of course a greater portion will be lost. Time will come when your grandson Rechavon, the son of King Shlomo, will have to divide the kingdom with Yeruvah Benavot. And this will be due to the fact, there are many reasons besides that, but the basic reason is the last straw is the fact that Moshe Hara was accepted, was listened to and taken from Siva. And these words of yours in response to this Moshe Hara will come back at you when the kingdom will be divided between your grandson and your own middle So dangerous and so poisonous is Lushan Hara. Peter says, of course, that we still, again we repeat again and again, that we still have to remember that all these items, or it seems, it appears that wrong was done, remember this is only appearances, because remember that King David was so holy, so great at Sadiq, that if we, the smallest of Jews today would be careful with a type of Lashon Hara like that, and surely how many, infinitely how many times more so would King David be careful. These stories have many deep secrets to them, but the underlying factor is that King David was a tzaddik emis, he had destroyed his Yitzhahara, he was a tzaddik who never tasted, never knew what the taste of sin really was like. This point must be stressed over and over again, interminably and eternally. Let's try to Keep that thought embedded in our minds. When we come to the heavenly court, we can repeat it there too and say it with true kavana, true belief. Now, King David got back to his kingdom and it seemed that there would be peace. Suddenly there arose a new revolution. Again, one Sheva ben Bichri felt that the time was ripe for revolution. Absalom couldn't do it, he would do it. So he called upon the tribes of Israel to revolt against King David. He drew many of these tribes on his side. They're always fools who listen to the one who makes a lot of noise. And the sides were drawn. King David called to Amasa this time. Amasa was the general of Shalom. 
Well, King David told he would appoint now as top general. He said to him, go out, I'll give you three days' time to mobilize the armies of the Jews. So he went out. At the end of three days, he failed to return. He wasn't through with the task, couldn't get it completed. He wasn't there. So Avishai, the brother of Yoav, was in the palace. King David said to Avishai, go out quickly and find him, bring him back. There's very little time for battle. Meanwhile, Yoav heard about this, and he was very displeased to lose his position as commander-in-chief of King David's armies. So he plotted against Amasa. His plot was, if two people meet in battle, and you have to draw, it's a question of drawing swords. If one has the advantage, of course, he can easily kill the second. But those, they were so fast on the draw, it was very difficult for one to beat the other. So Yoav's plan was, which plan, of course, which worked, he had a scabbard instead of in a vertical position, he had it in the horizontal position along his side. When he met Amasa, he pretended to be very friendly with him. He bent forward, sort of bowing to him, and as he bent over, Yoav's sword fell out of the scabbard, fell on the floor. So he innocently bent out to pick it up. As he rose up with it, he had the sword in his hand, and it was too late there for Amasa to realize that this was his death. He had signed his death warrant. Now that Amasa was killed, there was no longer time to appoint a different general. So King David, against his will, against his own likes, had to forego his desire and had to leave Yoav to remain as commander-in-chief of his armies. Yoav set out to battle. Yoav was very bloodthirsty in going after the enemies of King David. He came to the city where Shevet Mechri hid out. They came there ready to batter down the walls of the city. A very wise woman said to Yoav, why do you want to kill so many Jews? He said, I know, I just want to have this, this man Sheva. So she said, wait right there. She went inside. With her wisdom, she brought the head of Sheva Mechri to the wall, threw it down to Yoav and said, here it is, now you can leave. Yoav came back in victory. Yoav says that this was very legal because the, he deserved death anyhow since he had rebelled against King David. This was the end of this, the battles, the revolution against King David. And that started a new era in the life of King David that was closely tied in with the past, the final chapters of King David's life. We'll continue that the next time. Again, we state very emphatically that we are discussing one of the greatest tzaddikim of all time. King David, who, the Gemara says, felt in his humbleness he wanted to reach the Madrega of Hashem told him, you are far above that degree. So great is King David, so pure at Tzaddik, we should be zochered to have a true emun, a true faith in King David, and all of the Tzaddikim, and the course of this emun, we should be able to see the son of King David, Mashiach and David, his arrival with the rebuilding of the Beis Amikdash, the Gula Shtayim, Amen.